we come in our study of the Old Testament to the book of Ezra. And actually, when we talk about Ezra, we need to talk about Ezra and Nehemiah. In the ancient world, these books were regarded many times as one. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book, uh, but uh, they've been separated um, in our English Old Testaments. And also, they've been placed differently in our English Old Testaments than they were in the Hebrew Bible. That is to say, like Chronicles that we looked at last time, Ezra and Nehemiah were placed at the end of the Hebrew Bible, whereas in the, in the English Bibles, they're, they're at the end of the histories. But in Hebrew Bibles, they came after the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets, and then after, the, they, they were at the end of the writing. So you had Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and then uh, perhaps Daniel, and then Ezra would come after Daniel. And I think that um, that is an illuminating way to look at Ezra and Nehemiah because Ezra, the book of Ezra, picks up historically where Daniel leaves off. So you'll remember perhaps in the book of Daniel that what, what you have is uh, the fall of Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. The king there, Belshazzar, is killed, and Darius receives the kingdom, and Darius is part of a Medo-Persian uh, coalition that has taken Babylon out, and so the Medes and the Persians have, have taken over Babylon, and it's the, uh, the Persian king, Cyrus, that we read about right at the beginning of the book of Ezra. So the book of Ezra picks up historically where the book of Daniel leaves off. Um, so, so Babylon has fallen, Persia has come to power, and that's where Ezra begins in Ezra 1.1 in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That's where the narrative begins, but Ezra himself doesn't come on the scene until later. So just to review the history and, and put this in historical perspective, what we have in the Old Testament is uh, roughly in, in 2000 B.C. you have Abraham. And then roughly 500 B.C., to be specific, around 1446 B.C., Moses leads the people of Israel out of, of Egypt. But we can, we can say 2000 B.C., Abraham, 1500 B.C., Moses, and then David is king at around 1000 B.C. The northern kingdom falls, 722, 721 B.C. The southern kingdom falls, 586, 587 B.C. And then the nation is exiled. And in exile, uh, they, they are in Babylon, and, and Daniel is there at the, uh, at the Babylonian court, as we read in the book of Daniel, with the nation in exile in the, in the land of, of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And then in 539 B.C., that's when the Medes and the Persians come, and they kill Belshazzar, and they, they take down Babylon, and... Uh, so that's where the book of Ezra begins in 539 B.C., but then between 539 and the actual historical figure of Ezra, you've got over a hundred, well, almost a hundred, roughly a hundred years there, because uh, what happens, 539, the people are, they get this decree that we'll read about right at the beginning of Ezra, they'll return to the land, and then by 520, they get the temple rebuilt. We'll read about that some here in the book of Ezra. And then in, I'm sorry, 516, they get the, the temple rebuilt. And then 
they begin to wait. And, and this is somewhat distressing because what, what, what's happening in the book of Ezra is some of the promises about the return from exile are being realized. Other promises don't seem to be realized. So if, if we were to read through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve, we would see these splendid, phenomenal, fantastic depictions of Israel's restoration after the exile. It, it, it's going to be glorious. The, the Mount Zion is going to be exalted over every other mountain. A new David is going to reign on the throne in Jerusalem. A new temple is going to be built. A new covenant is going to be given from God. God's Spirit is going to indwell uh, the, the, the temple, and, and God is going to give a new heart to the, the Israelites so that they're going to keep the law, and it's going to be magnificent. And then, when they actually do return from the land, some of that stuff happens, but not all of it. And, and I think what we see in the book of Ezra is uh, a, a wrestling with what's going on. Why is it that we see aspects of the promises realized and other aspects of the promises not yet realized? And, and, and how do we deal with this now that we've come back from exile and we've seen the, the fulfillment of the promises inaugurated but not yet consummated? It's almost as though in, in Ezra and Nehemiah and, and Chronicles, it's almost as though we have that the inaugurated eschatology that you find in the New Testament is already not yet dynamic, where we're already seeing some promises realized, but not yet seeing other promises realized. And so, as we, as we look at the book of Ezra, look with me at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, and we read, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is 539 B.C., that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So Ezra is claiming the promises of the prophets are being realized. What promises does he have in mind? Well, we read on here, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And, and the proclamation allows the Jews to return from exile. It allows them to go back to Jerusalem. So the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah probably are these promises such as Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 12 that spoke of 70 years for Babylon. And so Ezra is claiming right here at the outset of his book that prophecies made by Jeremiah about 70 years for Babylon are being fulfilled. And the people are now being allowed to return to the land after exile. So we've got fulfillment. We've got another unspoken fulfillment here in the mention of the name Cyrus. You'll remember that Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, had said things like this. The Lord says in Isaiah 44, 28, that the Lord says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. And it goes on. So Isaiah, in the 700s B.C., late 600s B.C., is prophesying about this man named Cyrus, and now Ezra is claiming that this man Cyrus has actually come. He's on the scene, and so we've got prophecies from Isaiah and prophecies 
from Jeremiah that are being fulfilled. But I think actually what we're working with are, are two exiles and then two sets of prophecies that deal some with, with one exile and others with another exile. So, so to get at what I mean, look with me at Isaiah chapter 11 and we'll see hints of the two exiles that Isaiah is dealing with. So look for instance at Isaiah chapter 11 verse 11 where Isaiah says, in that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. What was the first time? The first time I think was the Exodus. I think that's what, what's in view here. The Lord brought uh, Israel out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and now he's going to extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. All these different places, not just one place like Egypt, all these different places, and that's because he scattered them to every nation under heaven. So I submit to you that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, Isaiah is talking about a second exodus. The first exodus was the first time the Lord extended his hand to recover his people. The second exodus is when he's going to, to extend his hand a second time and, and bring Israel home from all these places to which he has scattered them. Well, right here in the midst of this prophecy, right before he talks about that second exodus, that's going to be the ingathering from the exile, right before this, look at verse 8 of Isaiah 11. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Those two verses, Isaiah 11, 8, and 9, seem to pick up the imagery from the very first exile. The exile not from the land of Israel in 586 B.C., but an exile that's farther back from that, an exile from Eden. And, and when uh, God judged the serpent, he, he put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and, and He banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He put a, a, a cherubim with a flaming sword there to guard the way to the tree of life. And Isaiah 11, 8, and 9 speaks of the enmity between the seed of the woman, the nursing child, and the seed of the serpent, the cobra, and the adder, that enmity is gone. There's no more uh, enmity, there's no more danger, there's no more fear, there, there's, there's no more poison from these snakes, they're not going to bite the child, there's going to be safety. So Isaiah 11, 8 and 9 speaks of the return from the exile from Eden, that, that's the ultimate return from exile. And then simultaneously, right after that, in verse 11, Isaiah speaks of the return from the exile from the land in 721 and 586. And, and you could almost conclude from a, a passage like Isaiah 11 that the return from the exile from Eden and the return from the exile from the land of Israel, these are going to be simultaneous. And, and when we return from the exile from the land, the exile from Eden is finally going to be over. And I think what Ezra is dealing with
is the reality that they've returned from one of these exiles and not the other. They've returned from the exile from the land in 586, but they haven't yet returned from the exile from Eden. And, and this is what Ezra is wrestling with. So he's seeing prophecies realized and he's claiming fulfillment. He's claiming fulfillment for Jeremiah's 70 years for Babylon. From, from 605 B.C. when the first... So Ezra is claiming fulfillment for Jeremiah's 70 years. You've got approximately 70 years from 605 B.C. when the first exiles were taken into exile to 539 when, the, when this decree is issued that they can return to the land. It's a little less than 70, but it's close enough. Jeremiah, Ezra is claiming fulfillment for that. And uh, he's also claiming fulfillment for these promises of Isaiah that this one named Cyrus would be used of the Lord to, to uh, ret restore Israel to the land. And now, now we've got the decree that Cyrus makes in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. And before we read this decree, let me just observe that, that uh, as extravagant, as, as, as positive as these statements look, and as wonderful as this sounds from Cyrus, uh, I don't think we can conclude from, from these statements that he was actually converted because we have him on record uh, saying the same kinds of things about other gods and other peoples that he also restored to their lands from exile. So I don't think this is indication of, of Cyrus being converted to genuine worship of the Lord, but, but it is an indication that the Lord is working to, to accomplish His purposes and to keep His promises through this man named Cyrus. So here's this decree in Ezra chapter 1 verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and He has charged me to build Him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all His people, may His God be with Him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever, he pl whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So this is, this is interesting here what we've got. Uh, Cyrus issues this decree and then the people are, are funded here by, look at, look at verse 8, Cyrus king of Persia brought out the, uh, the items that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, the vessels, and, and, he, and he put them in charge of Mithridath, the, the, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince. And then you get an accounting of, of what was provided. And so it's, it's as though, just as when Israel came up out of Egypt, and the Egyptians gave them all those items of gold and silver and, and, and jewelry. So also, um, we have Cyrus. Look at verse 7. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord. He's also allowing and providing for the people of Israel to return to the land. And, and so I think that, that this is cast as a kind of new exodus, just as, as Pharaoh gave permission, and then the Egyptians funded Israel as they left Egypt the, the, at the first exodus. So now at this second exodus, Cyrus is giving permission and, and then um, enriching Israel as they make their way toward the land. Ezra chapter 2 is a list of the people who returned at that time, and the whole assembly 
down in Ezra chapter 2 verse 64 is 42,360 people and then another 7,300 and, and, and so there are approximately uh, 50,000 people who return to the land, which this would be, I think, one of those things that would, that would be uh, something that we have to wrestle with because the prophets, Isaiah through the 12, they've been talking about this return from exile as though it's going to be greater than the first exile. Remember Jeremiah chapter 16 where Jeremiah says, um, days are coming when uh, you will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought Israel out of all the places to which he had scattered them. So this second exile is supposed to be greater than the first exile from Egypt. But the first exile from Egypt, when Israel took a census, there were 600,000 people. And now at this second exile, there are only 50,000? What gives? What gives? Well, we're, we're wrestling with this, I think, in the book of Ezra. We've, we've got prophecies being fulfilled, but we've got these indications that the glorious, splendid, eschatological future is not yet fully being realized. Ezra chapter uh, 3, we get the account of them rebuilding the altar, and uh, they, they start to rebuild the temple, and... Um, and, and note the ambiguity about, about this project in Ezra chapter 3 when um, we read after they've, they've, they've laid the foundation of the temple, we read in verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites, the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy. So, so you've got these people who are experiencing fulfillment of promises. They return to the land, and, and they get the foundation of the temple laid, and a lot of them are rejoicing. But then there are these old-timers around, and they saw Solomon's temple that he built. And they look at this, and, and it just makes them weep, not with joy, but apparently with sadness, because, because this temple that we've just laid the foundation for is nothing compared to the greatness of Solomon's temple. And, and, and again, so we've got this, this ambiguity with what's going on. And then Ezra, Ezra seems to make a, a, a really interesting interpretive move. So, so we've, he's been operating at the time of, of uh, the return to the land in in 538 to 536 B.C. when Cyrus first issued the decree. And then look at Ezra chapter 4. And, um, and, and I think what Ezra's going to do, well, this is what he does. He brings together the opposition that the, that the remnant that returned from exile faced all through its history, from, from the time when they first returned to the land down to his own day. He brings together all that opposition, and he gives you an example of it, but the example of it comes from later. It doesn't come from the time when they first returned to the land, nor does it come from uh, the period soon after they returned to the land. It comes from a later period, and so it's, it's as though he's lumped together this whole period of time and treated it categorically, almost paradigmatically. And, and so look with me at uh, Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 and following. We read here, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple 
to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So these are people that after the Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom in 721 B.C., the, the Assyrians, they, they took the Jews out of the northern kingdom, and then they brought in pagan Gentiles to settle the northern kingdom. And you'll remember the story in Kings about how the, the lions attacked those, those uh, settlers. And then to fix this, the Assyrians brought in a priest of the Lord, a, a Jew, to teach these, these non Jewish, non-Israeli settlers how to worship the God of the land. But they didn't worship Yahweh. They sacrificed to their idols. And, and so the, these people are, are not real Jews, and they're, and they're claiming to worship Yahweh, but they don't. And so because they're not genuine worshipers of Yahweh and because they're not, uh, they're not uh, ancestrally related to the Jewish line of descent, Zerubbabel, verse 3, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. Now, th this is not just some sort of uh, um, uh, unjustified kind of snobbish uh, or, or even racist kind of, of um, um, Jewish superiority kind of mindset. This is not something that's illegitimate. This is something that, that's concerned to preserve the line of descent through which the Messiah will come. And the, this reaction from Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the others, this is a reaction that's in keeping with what God had commanded Israel. God has commanded the people of Israel at this point in the history of the world that they're not to intermarry with the peoples of the land. And God has given this command because he said, if you intermarry with the peoples of the land, you're going to start worshiping their gods. And they're going, to, they're going to lead you away into idolatry. And I don't want you to do that. So don't intermarry with them. And so this is faithfulness for them to refuse help from the idolaters and for them to uh, basically say to those people, you can't help us. You can't help us build a temple and, and you have nothing to do with us and, and you're, you're not part of the people of Israel. It's interesting to compare this with the way that uh, uh, in the New Testament Christians are to respond to those from the outside. Uh, but but this, this is what faithfulness looks like at this point in, in God's program. Israel is to is to uh, first establish the temple and, and uh, see the nation thriving. And then through that, the other nations roundabout are to be drawn to the worship of Yahweh in subjugation to the king of Israel. Uh, but, but Israel is not to partner with the, people, the peoples of the nations. And so they reject this help. And then in verse 4, we read, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So we see that these peoples of the land, they're not really interested in worshiping Yahweh. They're not really interested in whatever it takes. We want to see a temple made for the Lord. No, they're, 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 they're worldly minded. And if you're not going to let us help, help you, we're going to thwart you. We don't care what your kingdom program is. We don't care that you're trying to cover the dry lands with the glory of Yahweh. If you're not going to let us in on it, we're going to oppose you. And that's what they set out to do. Uh, 
And then look at Ezra chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, in the middle of the verse, they, they, they frustrated their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, this is not the Darius that we read about in Daniel chapter 5. This is a different Darius who reigned in 520 B.C. So this is from fi roughly 536. We, we, we get uh, a reference to 536 B.C. in uh, Ezra chapter 3 verse 8. In the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem. Uh, this is 536 B.C. From that time down to the reign of Darius, which is in, begins in 520 B.C. So for 16 years, they, they halt the work on the temple. And then in verse 6, we read, And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign. Now this Ahasuerus, he reigned from 486 B.C. to 465. So Ezra has just skipped ahead. And, and he, he hasn't done this haphazardly. He, he doesn't have his historical facts wrong. He's done this intentionally. He has skipped ahead from roughly 520 B.C. down to 486 B.C. because in his view, all the opposition encountered by those who returned to the land, the remnant that came back after exile, all the opposition can all be lumped together. So the opposition in 486 is the same as the opposition in, in, four, in 536. All, in other words, all the enemies of the, of the people of God can be treated alike. They're, they're, they're all of the same stripe. They're all of the same order. And so in the reign of Ahasuerus, they, they write these, or, or, or they, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And then look at verse 7 of Ezra 4.6, in the days of Artaxerxes, uh, they, they also wrote a letter. And Artaxerxes reigned from 465 to 425. So Ezra has just skipped from 536 to 486 to 465. And, and again, he's not confused. He doesn't have his historical facts wrong. He, he's lumping all this opposition that happened across this wide span of years. He's lumping it all together and saying, all, all these opponents of, of the rebuilding effort, they're all the same. They're all the same, and they can all be treated alike. And then he recounts the letter, and he, he recounts the way that... Um, Artaxerxes uh, gave permission for, um, well, actually, down in verse 23, we read, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Reshem and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, uh, and by force and power they made them cease. So um, Artaxerxes orders a halt to, to the work, um, and, um, and, uh, and then... Ezra skips uh, from that time back to uh, the time of Darius. So, so it's, it's as though he, um, he shows opposition at, at a later point in Israel's history, and then he comes back in verse 24 to the earlier point in, in the 520s B.C., and he says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
And um, then he tells us about Haggai and Zechariah who prophesied at the time of Darius, king of Persia, in, in around 520 to 518 B.C. as they were rebuilding the temple and they got it rebuilt in 516 B.C. So it's as though Ezra has started from that it, I mean, this is what happens. He starts from that period of time. Then he skips from 536 and 520 to 486. And then he skips from there down to 465. And then he comes back to 520 and he tells us about the rebuilding of the temple. Again, this is, and now notice, notice also that he's not confused about what's going on because the letter in the time of Artaxerxes in 465 has to do with the rebuilding of the walls. So, um, so notice, for instance, in verse 13 of Ezra 4, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished. So at that time, they're talking about the rebuilding of the walls. And then with Darius, they're talking about the rebuilding of the temple. So the way things played out historically is they got their temple rebuilt in 516 and then, and then the walls lay in ruins until Nehemiah returned in 458 and got the walls rebuilt. And Ezra is treating all of this opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, to the rebuilding of the walls. It's, it's as though he's saying, look, all of this is what we were talking about in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, where the psalmist says, why do the nations rage? And the peoples uh, gather together against Yahweh and His anointed. This is fruitless, what the peoples are doing. But it's all the same. And, and you can expect it, essentially, in every generation. In every, generations, in every generation, the peoples of, of the earth are going to gather together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's what they're doing in five. 20 B.C., that's what they're doing in 486, that's what they're doing in 465, that's what they're going to do in Ezra's day and in Nehemiah's day. They're going to gather together against the Lord and against His anointed. Well, the story goes on here, and um, we come ev eventually to the, to the completion of the temple in Ezra chapter 6. The story is told how they get the temple rebuilt. And, and then, now, uh, significantly, I think, at the end of Ezra chapter 6, there, there's, a, there's a, a recounting of the, re, of, of the reinstitution of the Passover celebration. This is, this is not incidental. This is very theologically uh, significant because what does the Passover celebrate? The Passover celebrates God passing over the people of Israel on the night when he struck down the firstborn of Egypt, as a result of which Israel came up out of Egypt. So this reinstitution of the Passover, it, it's hinting at we've just had another exodus from Egypt. We've just had another mighty act of salvation, Yahweh delivering his people. And, and notice what, what the, the the, the chronological sort of collapsing of these various events that takes place in Ezra chapter 6 and verse 14. We read there, Ezra 6, 14, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. That's at 520 B.C. That's when they're building the temple. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. 
Okay, so, so they got the temple rebuilt by the decree of the God of Israel. In other words, God said this is going to happen, and by the word of God, they got it done. And that was worked out. God's decree was enacted there in the middle of verse 14 by the decree of Cyrus, that's 539 B.C., and Darius, that's 520 B.C., when Darius says, yes, they can continue the work on the temple, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Artaxerxes reigns from 465 to 425 B.C. So you see what Ezra has just done. He's just once again brought together these three time periods in which the decree is given from Cyrus that the Jews can return to the land. That's the first event, 539. Then the next one, with, that's Cyrus. Then the next one, Darius, he's 520 when he, he authorizes the completion of the work on the temple. And then the third event is Artaxerxes who reigns from five. 465 to 425, and what's significant about his reign is that in 458, um, Ezra returns to the land, and then in 445, Nehemiah returns to the land. I said 458 earlier. I'm sorry, it was 455. 445 B.C., Nehemiah returns to the land of Israel, and at that point, they get the, the walls rebuilt. So it's as though the return, the rebuilding of the temple, and the rebuilding of the walls are all brought together and treated as the result of the decree of God through these, these three pagan kings, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, and, and they accomplish, verse 15, this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. So they accomplish the, the return to the land, the rebuilding of the temple, and the rebuilding of the walls. They're all brought together and treated, in essence, as one decree of God that, that results in the return and the two acts of rebuilding. Again, this is not because Ezra is confused about the details. He knows when these guys reigned, and he knows that, that you've got this span of time from four, 539 to 445. He knows this, and, 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 and what we're seeing, I think, is his interpretation of how God kept the promises, some of them, that he made to Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, and through Isaiah before him. There are other aspects of the promises that haven't yet been realized. And, and we're going to see some of that come to the fore uh, later in this, in this book. So that brings us to Ezra chapter 7. And, and, and so let's just keep in mind what, what, what the prophets were prophesying. The prophets were prophesying Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve. They're prophesying a new exodus and a return from exile and, and a glorious eschatological future for the people of God. So they get part of it and uh, they celebrate a Passover. And now look at the way that Ezra identifies himself in Ezra chapter 7 verses 1 and following. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, remember who he was, Hilkiah, that, that, that was the priest that found the book of the law in, in 2 Kings, and he brought it out to Josiah, and they had a revival. Jeremiah's father was also named Hilkiah, maybe it was the same guy. Verse 2, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mar Meraioth, 
son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. So we've just had a Passover celebration, and now we get this very significant descendant of Aaron, the chief priest, who's going to return to the land. But there's more significant information about this descendant of Aaron. Verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the Torah of Moses that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given. So he descends from Aaron and he's skilled in the Torah of Moses. And I would suggest that it's almost like Aaron and Moses, figuratively speaking, have returned in the persons of Ezra and Nehemiah. You've got this priest who's skilled in the law, and then you've got this leader who, who, who uh, re uh, rebuilds the walls and, and, and inspires the people to do what they're, what they're called to do. And, and when it says here that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, literally we could say he was, he was swift in the Torah. And I think what it means is he knows it. He knows the Torah and he's, and he's skillful, he's nimble, and he's swift in knowing uh, where various passages are and where relevant material is. And, and he, he just has it all at his fingertips. He knows it. Ezra very well could have and probably had the Torah of Moses memorized, and, and he was skillful in his deployment of, of relevant material from the Torah of Moses. And then notice also how, how the Torah is spoken of here. He was a scribe skilled in the Torah of Moses. I think that's probably a reference to the five books of Moses. And I, I, would, I would suggest that the burden of proof would be on those who, who would deny that that's a reference to the five books of Moses. And then look at how you've got human agency in Moses and divine agency. So you've got, he, he's a scribe skilled in the Torah of Moses that Yahweh, the God of Israel, had given. So it's the Torah of Moses. There's clearly a human author there but it's given by Yahweh, and, and it comes from the Lord. This is very significant, I think, for our doctrine of Scripture, for our understanding of what the Pentateuch is, and for our understanding of, of how we got it. The Lord gave it. That's what the Bible is claiming about itself. And, and as you encounter, as you read Old Testament scholarship, as you read other explanations, what you want to do is, I think, you want to embrace the explanation that is derived from the primary sources, and the primary sources are the biblical texts themselves. So, so in my view, you ought to believe about the Bible what the Bible claims for itself. And the evangelical view of Scripture is we, we, we believe what the Bible claims about itself, we start with the primary data, and then the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that these things are so. That's how we get our understanding of Scripture. We don't go to some some esteemed modern scholar who essentially has rejected the testimony of the primary sources and exalted his own mind over what the data claims. We don't go to people like that to get our doctrine of Scripture. No. Let's go to the Scriptures directly. Let's be people of the sources. 
I would suggest that when you reject primary source material, you are proceeding in an uncritical fashion. And then when you propose a, an explanation as to how you got this material that doesn't match what, what, what is the most plausible explanation of what these people thought, the, the, the authors and the original audiences of these texts, you, you have, an, you have a, a, an explanation of what these texts are that's not plausible in historical terms. What you've got is a, an explanation, and here I'm talking about people who deny what the Bible claims for, for itself. You've got an explanation that is not historical in that it's not historically plausible. And, and I say that because um, the, the Jews, uh, all through the faithful Jews, the members of the remnant, the people who preserved the text of the Old Testament, they're ready to die for the Bible. And, and so I think the historical, historically plausible explanation of the texts and of, and of um, how the Jews regarded the texts has to be an explanation that accounts for people being ready to give their lives for what these texts say. And so I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to find it plausible to say they all knew that this was forged. They all knew that um, Josiah or someone in Josiah's day had stitched together the Pentateuch and then basically it was propaganda uh, put out to justify what Josiah wanted to do. That's the, that's the historical critical uh, explanation, which I think is unhistorical because it's not plausible. It doesn't explain why these people are ready to give their lives for these books. And it's uncritical. It's uncritical because it rejects what the primary sources claim for themselves. So take the, take the genuinely historical explanation, which is one that, that, that gives a plausible account for why these people are ready to die for these texts, and take the critical uh, uh, explanation for what these texts are, which is what the primary sources claim about themselves. And then, and then see what the Spirit testifies to you. And I think you'll find yourself with a very evangelical doctrine of Scripture. We read here that Ezra goes up in, in Ezra 7.7, 7, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. This is 458 B.C. And then look down at verse 10. We get an explanation of, of what Ezra seeks to do. Ezra had set his heart to study the Torah of Yahweh and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's what Ezra is about. Ezra is a man who's going to study the Torah, he's going to do the Torah, and he's going to teach the Torah. This is not Pharisaism. This is not legalism. Ezra is, is living out what Psalm 1 says about the blessed man. Ezra is believing the Bible, and, and, and he's acting by faith. And I would submit to you that this is a, a wonderful example for us to follow. We should set our hearts to study the Torah of Yahweh, to do it, and to teach His statutes and rules in Israel. Now, in our day, I don't think doing the Torah of Yahweh means, as various commands in, in the Pentateuch say, don't wear clothing woven of more than one kind of cloth. I don't, I don't think that those kinds of commands, I don't think those commands apply to us today. However, uh, I do think that we should see in the Torah a pattern of life that says, 
essentially what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 teach us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So, in essence, if it doesn't make sense to you why the Lord would say, don't wear clothing woven of more than one kinds of more than one kind of cloth. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. If it doesn't make sense to you why the Lord would say, uh, don't intermarry with the Canaanites and the Moabites and so forth. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord. Do His word. Um, and, 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 and we should take that pattern and then apply it to the New Testament. Not to not wear clothing more than, woven in more than one kind of cloth and not to pursue some kind of racial purity which is no longer a part of God's program. Now people of all nations are being brought in and, and uh, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. So we're not, we're not pursuing some sort of um, uh, racial purity like they were commanded to do in the Old Testament. And, and I think that that is in some ways uh, living out the holiness of God, and, and I think that the don't wear clothing woven of more kind of more, more than one kind of cloth is also it's it's sort of a manifestation of the purity and the 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 unmixed nature of the holiness of God. Uh, but there are different ways that that is expressed today. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Don't be worldly, and 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 so we're to take this new new covenant revelation, and we're to live it out just as the Jews did. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. If he says, uh, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. If he says, preach the gospel uh, of, of Jesus and, and teach everything that Jesus commanded, don't lean on your own understanding. Don't you say, you know, if I preach this part of what Jesus commanded, it's going to be offensive to people. So I'm going to leave that part out. I'm just going to pronounce a moratorium on that aspect of the gospel. And I'm going to preach these other aspects of the gospel that everybody likes. And I can see that they like it. And in my understanding, no, 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 no. Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And you be like Paul. You preach the whole counsel of God. You don't leave the gospel out because Hey, they like the social work. They like the social programs. They like the cup of cold water in Jesus' name. They like the, uh, the uh, you know, um, uh, give, give, give your cloak to the one who asks you. But they don't like it when I tell them they're, that they're a sinner. And they don't like it when I tell them that Jesus is the only way. Well, are you going to make disciples or are you going to make people like you? If you want to make people like you, lean on your own understanding and, and, and go ahead. Displease God. You want to trust in the Lord with all your heart. You want to do what the Bible commands. You preach the whole counsel of God. And, and you, uh, you make disciples. You teach them everything that Jesus commanded. Ezra had set his heart to study the Torah of Yahweh and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And then um, we get this letter that Artaxerxes has given to Ezra authorizing him uh, to go to uh, Jerusalem and teach the people. And then um, when Ezra gets back, look over at, um, at what happens um, in Ezra chapter 9. And here, here I think what we have is Ezra's uh, evidence that while we, we have returned to the land, 
we have not returned to Eden. So we've, we've seen the fulfillment of some of God's promises, some of the prophecies, but not all of them. And here's the evidence. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. So notice, they haven't separated themselves from the peoples or from their abominations. So, so they're intermixing, intermingling, intermarrying with the Canaanites, and they're doing what the Canaanites do. And he goes on, verse 2, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the, the officials and chief men has been foremost. Now this is a problem because it was, it was this kind of intermingling with the peoples of the lands that led to idolatry that got the people exiled to begin with. And, and that's what Ezra is going to point out. He's basically going to say, we're doing it again. We're, we're doing the same thing for which we got ourselves exiled. And, and so Ezra is just appalled at this, and, and, he, and he reacts uh, vigorously. He, he, he tears his garment, and he, and he falls on his knees, and, and he prays this prayer of, of contrition and brokenness. He, he does this because he's concerned for the kingdom of God. He does this because he wants God to come back and re-indwell this temple and cause his glory to cover the dry lands as the waters cover the sea, and he doesn't want the sin of the people to keep God from accomplishing his purposes. So he's seeking mercy from the Lord. And the people repent. They confess their sin, and, and then they, um, they agree, basically, that, that they, they will separate themselves. And, and here I think it's helpful to know Hebrew, because uh, in, in some of these descriptions, the way that these... these um, intermarriages are described, it almost sounds like we, we haven't really had a marriage. We've, we've got living with kind of situations, maybe concubinage type uh, situations. But, but the, the normal language to describe marriages in the Old Testament is not, um, is not here in these texts. And I think that, that that's part of the problem. That, that Israel knows they're not to intermarry, and so they don't marry these women. They just take them and use them. And, and they're to quit this. They're to, they're to stop this. This is defiling themselves, and this is leading to idolatry. This is, this, is not, this is not instances like what we have in the book of Ruth. This is not uh, Moabite and Ammonite and so forth, women coming and saying, we want to be worship of, worshipers of Yahweh, this is Israelites adopting immoral practices from the peoples around them, disregarding the Lord, and then, and then, and then going with the, uh, the pagans into abominations. And so the people confess and, and agree that they're going to resolve these situations. And in chapter 10, they confess their sin, and they, they say that they'll put away the foreign women, and, and they'll, they'll deal with this very painful and, and awful situation. Now, uh, as, as, we, as we leave the book of Ezra, let's just, let's just observe what we have. 
we have a book that describes the realization of, of aspects of, of prophecies from Jeremiah and Isaiah. And at the same time, it's describing a wretched, sinful state that is evidence that other aspects of Jeremiah's prophecies, like the writing of the Torah on their hearts and all of the people knowing Yahweh, Jeremiah 31, those aspects of the prophecies have not been realized. So clearly the people have not returned to Eden. So it's almost like there's an already not yet thing uh, happening in the book of Ezra. And that's where we'll leave the book of Ezra uh, with, with Ezra, I think, showing his, his audience where things are and offering to his audience what they should do. They should commit themselves to the Bible and they should repent of their sin and they should renounce worldliness and they should obey the Lord. That's what the book of Ezra uh, calls its audience to do. And they should do this so that God's glory will, will radiate out from their faithful and, and righteous and upright lives. And when we come back in the next session, we'll look at the book of Nehemiah, which will show us an, another step forward in the outworking of the promise. This is, this is where they rebuild the walls, and yet the problem still remains. At the end of book, the book of Nehemiah, they're, they're going to have a, a, um, a renewal of the problem of intermarriage with the Canaanites. So we'll leave it there for now, and we'll come back in the next session and look at the book of Nehemiah.